0: Greetings, Future Fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week's guest is return guest Elliot Pepper, who joined us in episode 47 to talk about science fiction as scenario planning, a kind of apology or argument for the entire field. This week, we're going to get into his writing specifically, and even more specifically, his book Breach the third and final volume of his analog series, which explores the social, psychological, political consequences of the way that our lives online subject us to subliminal influence by actors with both our best and worst interests in mind. And the the individual becomes a sort of contested territory In an age of algorithmically curated news, AI-assisted demographic targeting, and unprecedentedly powerful information technology companies whose influence challenges the power of the state and forces us into a reconsideration of our established systems of governance in the 21st century— This is about a book that was released a couple weeks ago, but the timing is impeccable given this week's news on the Department of Justice preparing their antitrust probe into Google, people asking questions about whether it's desirable or even possible to break up Facebook into a number of smaller companies. This is definitely a set of questions very much alive in the minds of Americans and people around the world. So it seems like a good time to consider, once again, how our technologically mediated environments shape the way that we think about and act upon these issues. But before we get into it, I just want to give a shout out to this week's new Patreon supporters, Leaf Early and Moody Al-Kamash. In addition to the 145 other Patreon supporters for this show, thank you all so much for getting me that much closer to this year's goal of 200 patrons. I really hope you enjoy being a part of the Sci-Fi Book Club and uh, getting access to all of the exclusive and early content that I publish to Patreon. Um, Our next book club sometime in july will be for sijin lu's three body problems so if you're interested hop on in and you can also uh, retroactively enjoy our discussions from peter watts's blindsight and diana slattery's xenolinguistics also deep thanks to everyone who has taken a moment to rate and review this show on apple podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to it I know that this program is super niche, but you would be amazed at how big this niche really is, how many more people we can fold into this wonderful conversation, how many new kindred spirits you have yet to meet who found future fossils from your podcast review. So thanks in advance. If you are about to review this show, it's hugely appreciated by all of those future unborn archaeologists who could not have found it otherwise and lastly stay tuned for a special additional episode this week from my friend kevin wolmut who is reading two excellent essays about the next 10 billion years Uh, stay tuned in your podcast feed for that bonus episode and with that, thank you all so much for listening and enjoy this wonderful conversation with Elliot Pepper, author of Breach. You probably are conserving bandwidth here so we I could kill the video.
1: Uh yeah, we're unfortunately the Bay Area does not live up to its uh it, its reputation as a sort of hub of the internet by providing absolutely terrible bandwidth to most of the neighborhoods. So here, here in Oakland, we have pretty bad connections. So if I do video, you're going to get a lot of breaks in the recording.
0: Yeah, I, I had Eric Davis on a while back, and he was we were we were joking about how the tech nexus is increasingly uh, inimical to human existence. It's like it's. Uh, <laughs> who's the 5g really for it's for robots you know but at any rate
1: right mm. yeah yeah that's no, all right
0: <laughs> well man i'm i'm really glad to have you back on the show and um i'm glad to be here <laughs> thanks you know last time last time we we spoke we spoke sort of vaguely about the role of speculative fiction authors in forecasting and you know, their value to, to, uh, enterprise, which I know is like, you know, you're coming out of that VC world, but given that you just finished this trilogy of books that are as, as they say, sort of frighteningly plausible in the near term, I think, uh, it makes more sense to to talk today about some of the big ideas in your work. Yeah. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm happy to talk about whatever you think will be of most interest listeners. So Mm. I'll, I'll go wherever you lead me
0: well right on so you know so in this this analog trilogy uh that your 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 final book breach is coming out in may and this arc is an arc about globe encircling tech monopolies and the revolutionary activists who oppose and sometimes penetrate and exist within them and uh I'm curious, (laughs) I'm curious, what are the sort of like prime concerns here? Like, what are the what are the big questions that you're trying that you are trying to raise through this work? And you're trying to enter into uh, the conversation, because it's clear that in certain ways, this is now a much larger part of the public conversation than it was when you started writing these books.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. I mean, uh, first of all, I I actually, I I like what you said when you said what are, what are some of the questions you want people to think about when reading these books? Because I actually think that one of the most fun things for me uh, as a novelist about writing fiction is that it is very much about questions more than answers, right? So it's what, when I'm working on a new book, I always try to find contradiction, I try to seek out questions that don't have clear answers, because that messy middle, that nuance is where the interesting parts are, right? Like, if, if the answer is obvious, I don't need to write a book about it. Um, and so, uh, so that's actually where I often start. And I think that, you know, in terms of thinking about uh, the tech, how technology impacts the future extrapolated in the analog series, it, it can be helpful to, uh, to think about the past. So, you know, when the printing press was invented, it fundamentally changed human information technology, right? Um, instead of every manuscript needing to be copied out by hand, you could suddenly uh, print manuscripts, at print perfect copies or nearly perfect copies for very, very cheap, which totally changed, uh, the written word from being this unbelievably expensive, expensive luxury enjoyed mostly by monks and a privileged few, um, to something that was much more democratic and just became sort of like a, a part of how the world worked. And, by becoming part yeah. of our structures. One of the sort of things that many people don't realize about the printing press is how it very much was one of the things that set off the Hundred Years' War, the, you know, the Church Wars, basically, in, in mm-hmm. Europe, because you suddenly were able to not just, you know, like initially the whole goal with the printing press was to be able to distribute Bibles. That's why, that's what people wanted to do with it. But the minute that you could distribute Bibles, you could also distribute anything else, right? Like anything else that you wrote down. And, um, and I don't think we ever would have had, you know, the Inquisition without the printing press because being able to distribute the, the written word in the way that it allowed people to do also allowed people with really extreme opinions and really violent world views to spread their ideas uh in the you know (laughs) late middle age or you know renaissance era of uh virality Mm
0: right
1: uh suddenly you could have an idea like that spread across many different communities without being dramatically changed in the interim and also without being sort of uh adopted to local context or moderated by by anyone in between, because once you write something down, you can pass it around. And, And so I think that, you know, technology is one of the prime forces that shifts what human society looks like across history. And you can't understand history without understanding the history of technology. And I think that right now we are in the midst of, of yet another transition right i mean if you look at uh, some of the really fascinating pieces of technology that have dramatically shifted how our world works compared to generations that came before i mean i can name a few i mean obviously the printing press is one of them certainly writing itself was one of them uh, a much older one uh you know plumbing and sanitation is a huge one that we never think about right mm-hmm. but it, it's sort of invisible to us it's it's uh it's under the under the asphalt and yet our it, it has completely transformed the cities like like cities in the modern sense couldn't exist without modern sanitation and and, and sewer systems so they it literally shapes the world that most people live in if you live in an urban area you know, birth control and contraception has also dramatically changed the world um, and and how we live our lives compared to not very long ago. Same with antibiotics, same with electricity, same with uh, the Green Revolution, with, you know, basically the invention of industrialized agriculture. Um, all of these things have dramatically shifted how the world works, and in doing so, they challenge traditional institutions because institutions by their very nature are run by people in power and people in power hold their power based on the status quo right like that's how the world works like you write like congress in our in our in the u.s right now like congress writes laws based on what's going on in in the country, not what might be going on 10 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. So lawmaking or policymaking is largely a reactionary measure to just sort of, okay, we see that there's a problem and we want to try to address it, right? And, and, and so right now, we are in the process of basically digitizing reality, right? We we have uh, computers and phones, and wireless networks and the internet are are connecting the world ever more tightly together and digitizing the world uh, ever more effectively. And so what that's doing is that's creating this sort of ubiquitous digital shadow of the physical world that we all live in. And in the analog book, that is played out further and they called the feed, right? to sort of like reference that that digital reality that runs in parallel to our physical ones even today like without without the the advances that these books take for granted the internet and computers and computer networking are already challenging many of our traditional institutions right um like there are a bunch of easy examples like The Treaty of Westphalia, which was signed a few hundred years ago in in Western Europe, basically created the modern conception of the nation state, what we think of as a country, like what it means to have a central government and what the central government is supposed to do and the social contract that's sort of set up with citizens. Now, like, it's starting to get awkward because now we have all of these sort of nation states that are that were designed to be containers for pretty uh, self-contained national economies, right? And like self-contained national life. Um, but today, trade is completely global. Money is completely global. Information is now completely global. Like you can just iMessage with someone on the other side of the earth and it's free. Right? Like, I mean, as long as you have data access. I mean, it's just, it's wild. So we've, we, the, the realities of our lives have changed a lot. Like the, the way that the economy functions, the way that our lives function is super different than when they wrote the Treaty of Westphalia. And we haven't updated what it means to be a nation state sufficiently since then. Right? So I think that you know, right now we're in one of those interesting tipping points, right? Just like when the printing press came around, um, because it's messy, we actually haven't figured out the new kinds of societies that we want to build, given these new the new reality we've already invented. And that's really, you know, sort of, I think the theme that underlines all three books,
0: so there's, there's something that I see here that in in the pattern you're describing, which is this tension between the erasure of political borders, you know, uh, the economic coupling of different industries and, and different regions. I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, was it Parag Khanna's map of the United States redrawn according to infrastructure? you know where you see like
1: I what... haven't seen that but that sounds fascinating. Oh, it's
0: it's wonderful. It's like uh you know western Missouri belongs to Kansas, eastern Missouri belongs to Illinois, you know north California and south California are their own political mm. blocks. And this is the reality mm. we live in, but we're still sort of living according to, you know like people driving around here in Santa Fe with these bumper stickers that are like kind of conservative stubbornness being like New Mexico is mm-hmm. part of the United States. It's not its own country, you know? And, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> but on the other hand, mm-hmm. to call to the the second book borderless, but yeah. then, but on the other hand, the feed is sort of a, a symptom of the way that this hyperconnectivity creates these new complex overlapping borders with filter bubbles. Yeah. And so like mm-hmm. when I look at this stuff, I'm, I'm thinking at it from, An evolutionary zoom out here at the Mm -hmm. emergence of complex life from simple bacterial life and the Mm -hmm. enclosure of these different bacteria into this new macro system the the nucleated cell and how each of those different bacteria became in some way more specialized became more partial or fragmentary and reproductively dependent on the new system-wide thing that they were all participating in, and so like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm curious, like, how do you think about this? Not just looking at it as a as an evolution of technology thing, but as you know, a deep time process that is driven by mm-hmm. these sort of like thermodynamic cycles, where a new macro system emerges, and then all of its parts sort of have to redefine themselves because, and this particular thing, especially in, in relationship to the self and to psychology, Mm -hmm. you know, which are both issues Mm -hmm. that you, you explore in these books.
1: Yeah. Um, So I think that, um, you know, an interesting approach to answering that question is to think about the current sort of discussion of AI in the news. Right. So if you, if you read it, you know, I don't know, if you read a Wired article or something that's, that's about AI, it's sort of like AI is like the new sexy thing everybody wants in their PowerPoints. Right. So like every, every company is talking about how they're using AI and all this different stuff. And, and I think that, uh, most of both the enthusiasm and the traction of, <laughs> of the conversation around AI is it, a lot of it's really misguided. I mean, in, in, in one sense, um, AI is just uh, a, an approach to software programming, like, you know, like machine learning is basically statistical programming. It's amazing. It can do really, really cool things. Like it makes Google Translate work really, really well, right? You can solve great problems with it, uh, or big problems with it. Uh, and, and I think that it will wind up and technologies that we use in everyday life, in in a similar way to how the internet has changed things however it's not like ai is not any more conscious than any other computer program or any other tool we've ever made right so like if you think about like if you actually take a look at like the code behind a piece of you know TensorFlow, like like google's machine learning platform like mm-hmm. it's code like there's nothing there's not, you know there's no there there And a lot of the hand-waving around AI is, I think, sort of self-defeating. But I think that the interesting part is not at all that like somebody's piece of software is going to just magically cross this infinite gulf to consciousness. What's actually interesting is if you think about the entire internet, not just Google or something like that, but like the whole internet, if, if you think about the internet, as if it is already an AI, right? So mm-hmm. if you think about the internet, as an AI, you could think about it has these different limbs or organs, just like we have, you know, a liver and a stomach and a brain, right? Like, like Google is sort of like, in some ways, the brain, right? It's almost like, helping to organize all of the digital information in ways that make that information both human and machine readable, right? You have uh, Google maps, cars, and satellites just sucking in data and imagery of the physical world around it to then feed this enormous brain, right? You have Facebook and sort of the social networks that, are, that, that are allowing us to map our own relationships on computers, right? Like we are the ones posting everything on Instagram and like, you know, sending all these texts all the time, right? Like, you know, like most of our economy basically runs on email, right? What do most people do? Like most white collar jobs are basically people sending emails to each other with (laughs) occasional and exceptional in-person meetings and little bits of focused creative work scattered throughout, right? Like that's sort of most jobs, at least in the US. And you have cameras and and drones and Alexa and phones in everyone's pocket everywhere. Like we're all sort of basically cyborgs. We just have an an external digital uh, limb ourselves that, that usually follows us around in a pocket or a purse, right? And all of those objects have recording devices in them and are collecting data all the time and are being tracked all the time. Um, And that allows us to then make them better and make the services we use them with better. and, And it also allows for more nefarious things. And then you think about all the actual physical infrastructure, all the fiber lines that we've buried beneath the ground, all the satellites we've thrown up into orbit. Um, all the wire, wireless signals that permeate the air around us. Right. I mean, like, who's working for who here? Right? right? Like, you know, there's, there, you know, there's a great argument that sort of like, you know, grass, and raccoons and dogs and cats. I mean, are they the big winners in evolution? Because basically, for whatever reason, they've convinced humans, or humans have decided not clear which, that, you know, that we should spend a significant amount of our resources as the sort of dominant species on earth right now to like make them super happy, right? Like that's why we all take care of our lawns <laughs> and, and, and do things like that. That's sort of ridiculous, right? In a way, grass is the big winner. Um, it certainly c- covers a lot more territory than it ever did before we started cultivating lawns just for fun, right? So th- there's this interesting relationship with digital technology as well. So, I mean, if you start thinking about the entire internet as an AI, then Google is not a company that is building what could be an, uh, in the future some kind of AI program. Rather, Google and its, like, its status as like a corporation all of the sort of high, like corporate hierarchies that exist within it and all of the people employed there working on teams there are actually just one part of this vast AI, right? So that, that means that our legal system is just another algorithm within it, right? Like, all, like all of those things start to cascade. So from that perspective, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that to the extent that we Stitch civilization together ever more tightly. We become ever more interdependent, just like the cells in my liver are alive in their own right, but also depend on the cells in my brain to do things, and vice versa.
0: Do you, right? do you so, think that uh, do you yeah. think that the cells in your liver are trying to stage a coup? and like take take <laughs> down the brain cuz th- this is the thing that you know like that that puzzles me all the time is that i feel like that that scale free view that you're presenting here is more and more accessible almost passe in certain circles like people that powers a mm-hmm. 10 video from the 70s people are starting to find a a modern science inflected language anyway for understanding uh-huh. our place in this greater uh system this this order and, and sure, you know sure. whether people you know lean on google being you know a sentient thing or whether people lean on you know gaia theory yeah. but the the thing about it though is that um as these new layers of emergent order uh, appear in the fossil record they're made out of these things that have lost The kind of uh you know interdependence has this like you know warm fuzzy thing but it also suggests that like there's no turning back the clock that we're living in a more energetically efficient world a more convenient world like the whole evolutionary process tilting towards convenience in this you know free energy minimization kind of sense and so you know we have this um you know I, it feels to me that that the kind of rebellion against i mean i am not like you know a a techno optimist uh booster of progress here but it does seem as though we are on a runaway train and attempts to stop the train are only causing more damage and confusion and 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 yet we're moving into a space that like you said at the beginning of this is making us deeply uncomfortable because it's challenging All of our institutions, including the institution of the self as an individual, as as like a discrete thing. And that there's this sense in which your books thoroughly explore the sort of Jaron Lanier inversion where he's pointing out that Mm. that these social networks turn us into the operant edge nodes of this network and that what we think Mm. of as our own ideas and desires are are it's they're not in, generated internally and then of course also you know breach ends with this this sort of uh, a beautiful statement about the nature of the self as a composite and plural thing and I'm really curious mm. how you Like what, what kind of, I mean, if you want to keep it on the questions rather than the answers, what kind of questions do you think are helpful orienting questions as we move into this like intensely psychedelic and bizarre space where, (laughs) where the, the person reading the book is actually, you know, just this, this node and our, it seems as though our human identity is um like you said in your your you interviewed uh, Nick Harkaway for the LA Review of Books and in that conversation you know talking about the more we learn about information technology and brain science we realize that this whole thought about how we come to decisions and how we understand the so-called reality is like deeply deeply interrogated so like where do you like what kind of um like what kind of orientation <laughs> do you hope for for people here? Like, where do you think the most useful questions Uh, are in this, in this sort of mess of like the end of the modern self?
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm not a big believer in self as like, or or in as like unitary self as, as a, as an idea. Um, I think that we are all made up of many selves, right? Like, like, when we we have these competing elements within us and that part of what it means to be human is to try to stitch those together into some kind of coherent narrative. And we are doing that on the fly all the time. Like memory is synthetic, right? We spend most of our time either doing things in the moment, like being aware and doing something, or synthesizing memory, or speculating about the future, right? It's sort of like that's what's going on in our heads constantly. And I think that part of what it means to be human is to stitch together all of these sort of like disparate elements into one story that we tell ourselves about ourselves that is our identity, right? Now, so so I think that, you know, if you look at each of us, if you could have a window into my mind, you would see not one person, but sort of like many different elements that are always sort of merging and sort of breaking apart and coming back together in new ways. Now, when you take that up a level, I also think that we only really exist, sort of like quantum entanglement, like we only exist in relation to each other. So I think that uh, trying to conceptualize what it means to be a self in the absence of context is sort of meaningless to me or i don't know what to do with that and so i think that because of that you like we exist because of each other and in relation to each other which means that you're right like as the world changes the circumstances we are born into like we have to deal with that like we don't We don't have a choice to be like, you know what, I'm going to opt out, right? I'm going to opt out of reality or I'm going to opt out of history, right? No, like doesn't matter how much you don't like it. Like if you don't like it, like do something to make a difference, right? And I think that that is just the only choice we have or it's not even a choice. Like no matter what happens, you will be forced to deal with that. So uh, you can either be bitter about it or you can embrace it. And I prefer to embrace it, but, it, but there are a lot of people who are intimidated understandably by the weight of the circumstances they're born into. Right. So in my mind, I, I, I mean, I like it's sort of funny. I mean, there are certainly dark elements in my books, but I definitely think of myself as an optimist and I think of the futures and the journey that that these books go on um, as fundamentally optimistic in in the sense that although the things we've built enable all sorts of new problems the only way we've ever dealt with problems is to try to solve them right so uh, you know i think that that yes you know for example New York City streets were filling up with manure at the end of the 19th century and it got so bad that they called all the urban planners in the world together or many of the leading urban planners at the time to try to figure out what are we going to do we we have these cities that are filling up with horse manure which spreads disease and it's just disgusting so you know what what can we solve this problem with and the, the this meeting of the sort of like the best urban planners in the world Came to the conclusion that cities were over and that basically everyone should move to the countryside because there was no way to get around the fact that horses poop and horses are how you get around. So you're screwed, right? Like basically, you can't have cities that go beyond a certain size or density because they'll just drown in horse manure.
0: It was a singularity.
1: Uh, Exactly. Exactly. No, it's exactly right. It was like the singularity of the end of the 19th century, right? And and then what happened? Like, you know, 20 years later, everyone was using cars and this problem had been totally forgotten. It was like not it was just like, oh, yeah, we, we barely even remember that that was an issue. Right. And what did that what happened because of cars? Well, now we've pumped enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to completely change the earth system. And now we're, you know, it's like, oh, shit. Right now. We, now we're dealing with that because we solved the manure problem. Right. So uh, so I think that there's a human tendency to want an end game like mm. we it, and I think that that desire for resolution is is part of what makes um, certain sort of apocalyptic religious uh, scenarios appealing. Right. Because it, it's like, well, the rapture right or well you know whatever choose your religion you know choose your religion um like there's this that we're going to reach this ultimate point when everything the, the singularity right we're going to reach this point where are just like everything radically changes and sort of we get to judgment day in a sense and i think that that's also part of what makes narrative itself appealing right we have like stories that have like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Oh, thank God, there's an end, yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly, like that wrap everything up, and when you listen to a song, it's the same thing, you know, that feeling of when you're listening to music and, you know, the, the song is going and going, and even if you've never heard the song in your life before, if I paused it, right in the middle, you would be able to hum the note that was supposed to come next, right? Because we just have this this intuition for, okay, we need to like resolve that. We need to come back to to that note, right? We have to resolve this tension. And I think that that is a really interesting psychological dynamic within our own mind, but I don't think it reflects much about the nature of the reality we live in. And so when when I look at uh, issues like manure or climate change, Um, they are huge issues and I think that, you know, they really deserve our attention. Um, but because like you said, we can't turn back the clock, it means that our way forward is clear. Like we actually have to fix this stuff and we have to figure out a way to fix this stuff. And like, if we can't figure out how to fix it, given our current way of thinking, we need to change our way of thinking so we can fix it. Right. Right. So that's how I look at the world. And I think that sort of comes through in the book, you know, but, you know, that, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, maybe that's the best answer I can give mm-hmm. to your question. It's just that, you know, life is complicated. And like, you, you shouldn't assume, as some in Silicon Valley do, that you are going to create such a clever solution that you will anticipate every problem. No, right? You won't. Like you're gonna fail at that. Your solution is gonna create new problems. And the best way to deal with with that knowingly is to try to keep an open mind. Try to try to maintain your beginner's mind, maintain your state of awareness about the world and try to continually challenge your own assumptions.
0: Mm. That's a good one, you know, cuz I was I was just watching a talk by uh Jeff West, the uh, former president of the Santa Fe Institute. He was talking about scaling laws in cities. I'm sure you you, you may have seen his his TED talk on the surprising math behind cities. He talks about how, Yeah, like as, as a city grows, the infrastructure grows at less than like as it doubles, the infrastructure grows uh, less than a doubling because there's efficiency in the network. But then the the same network properties create a, a super linear expansion of all of these other networked things like crime and disease and patents mm-hmm. and all of this other stuff. And mm-hmm. he made this point in this talk, um, not the TED talk, but uh, this other one, where he was talking about how as these things, as as systems like a city grow, the pace of that network due to this exponential innovation is itself. The Delta of that pace is itself exponential. And so we're like, we're creating exponentially more problems and we're getting to the end of these innovation cycles where we have, we hit this point. He, you know, he talks in mathematical terms as a finite time singularity where it's either radical innovation or collapse, and because each, each radical innovation only bootstraps this ratcheting process, rather than a singularity, we're coming up on sort of an accelerating cue of many singularities, and that there's basically like the, the, this if you can't really call it an end game, like in, you know, in, in your book, which you know it ends in a, a sort of a beautiful beginning the dawn of a new thing Mm -hmm. that that we get to this point where we're and and kevin kelly has spoken to this uh quite a bit as Mm -hmm. well that we're at a process of constantly beginning and yet Mm -hmm. every new beginning is in a system that is more complex uh more multifaceted more difficult for us individually or collectively to understand Or affect any kind of predictable change on. So I mean, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. Just that it seems (laughs) like we're still. Just just that I mean, it, it seems as though there's this paradox, which is that the the solutions are opening us up into deeper questions, and that your sort of preference or emphasis on the question. Is almost like an evolutionary adaptation to an age we can't understand because you know you've got the, the the massive conglomerate in your books the mm. Commonwealth sort of uh, you know Google esque mm. stand in the the problem that it seems like people are stuck on these days is that we regard these these massive institutions in some sense as individuals I mean maybe mm. they are in a mm. vast evolutionary way but operating from within them you know as a user of the feed. Then there's it's like being inside the brain and trying to affect the massive changes in neuron. It seems like we're thinking about this completely wrong, and I mean, are you? <laughs> like, is this is this the kind of thing that keeps you up at night? Also, I don't know. I mean, uh so I would say you know it's sort of fascinating, right? Like I I think that
1: Kevin and I'm not sure this guy's name. Yeah. um Jeff. You said yeah, Jeff. Was- uh, are both right. I mean, like we you, you see these really fascinating sort of like data points of acceleration, right? That that you can have these sort of uh positive feedback loops that just make things go uh and go in new and strange directions. And so that can feel disorienting because there's it can feel impossible to make sense of a world that is changing so fast. At the same time, if I was living 10,000 years ago in Northern California, where I live today, I mean, uh, there was like almost everything in the world or not everything, everything, but a huge amount of what happened to me was controlled by factors I totally had no way to understand and that were fundamentally beyond my control, Mm. right? (laughs) Like, you know, You have a baby and it died two years old and you have no, you're just like, well, like either we got unlucky or like some God must have been pissed at us, right? Or whatever, right? Like you, you, you would make up, you, we'd come up with ways to help us live through that pain, but, but most of our explanations were not, you know, did not reflect what we now know of how the world works, right, of like, uh, germs, for Mm -hmm. example. (laughs) So, so I, I, I think that the feelings we have today may not be as singular as we imagine them to be. Because while we are creating all of these new complex systems, and we have these new ways to influence the world, that are unprecedented, right? Like we have enormous power, uh, you know, our tools have given us enormous power and that that power has consequences. And at the same time, our tools have also made the universe more legible to us, Mm. right? Like we've actually figured out how to heal your two-year-old who would otherwise die, right? Like we've actually figured out how to sanitize a wound. We've actually figured out that it's important to drink clean water, right? Uh, You know, there are tons of things that we've figured out that would have completely felt beyond the veil, right, to to someone from 99% of human history. So, you know, I, I think that there's a balance here between yes, we are living in an age of acceleration. Absolutely. Um, And yet, we have always been confronted by a universe that defies our limited ability to make sense of it. Right? And as a curious person in a curious species, right? Like, I feel like curiosity is one of the defining characteristics of homo sapiens, right? Hey, yeah. let's try it. Like, I want to press the red button, right? I, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, like, you know, I think that's like a, a big piece of where our tool making sort of, you know, skills have come from is that curiosity about the world. I think that part of that is driven by this internal emotional state of, being on the verge like this vertiginous feeling that we almost but not quite can wrap our minds around what's really going on and that if we only take that further step we'll get there right and and so i think that that is part of what fuels that feeling is part of what fuels our curiosity or maybe that is what curiosity means. But I also think that like hunger, that feeling can never be permanently satiated. Right? So we can discover quantum mechanics. But then we suddenly realize shortly thereafter, that there are more layers, right? Like (laughs) that the universe keeps going, right? like at, at every scale. Right? So that doesn't mean that we should stop trying to make sense of the universe and our our own existence and experience within it but it does mean that we might be able to sleep easier at night right because if you truly are on the brink of such a world and self transforming insight Maybe you wouldn't be able to sleep because, you know, if only you could get there, that would happen. But if you realize that maybe feeling on the brink of insight is, in fact, core to the human condition, then it means you can enjoy it. Right. (laughs) Like you enjoy that feeling of curiosity, just like a child might enjoy the anticipation of Christmas morning rather than just wanting to be there, actually enjoying the feeling of anticipation. It's the, the same as enjoying the feeling of hunger, knowing that you're about to have an amazing meal that you cook at home, right? right you know, rather than just being like, ah, I'm so upset because I'm hungry, right? Like, well,
0: and I think that, you know, or enjoying yeah. the process of discovering who is influencing you through the digital network in which you're in, permanently embedded, you know, it's like that's one of the sort of fun things about your your writing is that it really triggers this contemporary what Doug Rushkoff called fractal noia, the eruption of conspiracy theory in this kind of a space <laughs> where you know that yeah. you're being messed yeah. with, you know. But it's like if we yeah. can if we can twist that, like you're saying, and we can turn it around and, and make it more of a perennial human concern, then it's about this sort of continuous story of the, the ongoing revelation of all of the ways that we are deeply interconnected to all of this stuff. It doesn't sound quite so bad. It's like metanoia. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like here, so take, turn that fractal noia or whatever the, that's a great term Uh um, on a tech, right? So like, okay. So I suspect that people are trying to manipulate me via social media right? Like the simple example, right? So like, filter bubbles and all that jazz. Well, what does that really mean? Let's walk through what that really means. It means that like, there's another person in the world who disagrees with me, right? So they clearly, if we already agree with each other, they wouldn't need to manipulate. me. So what they're doing is they disagree with me, and they're trying to trick me into agreeing with them, right? So they're being like a jerk, right? Like they're being intellectually dishonest by trying to trick me into sharing their worldview, right? Now, is that new? Like, (laughs) hell no. Like people have been trying to trick each other for as long as there have been people, right? Like we've had manipulating assholes since the beginning of time. It's just that now those people have access to tools that allow them to try to trick people who are not physically in the room with them. Right, which they used to that was the that was the old barrier to tricking people. But if you're tricking people remotely, like if you deal with someone in a in the same room as you, and they're trying to trick you or trying to trick others, and you're aware of their trickery, what do you do? Well, you try to expose them and tell the truth. Right? So you try to say, Hey, stop trying to trick me or Hey, this guy's trying to trick you. And here's why. Or, hey, rather, we just ignore that guy completely and here's my point of view that you should look at and i'm not trying to trick you i'm being honest about it right so you should listen to me instead you know we still only have the time we're given we're just spending more of it online so we're spending more time interacting with people remotely than we used to interacting only with people right around us but it's not like there's more time for these tricksters to take from us it's just that we're interacting with a different group of people so what does it mean that we can interact with people remotely? It means you can trick people remotely, but it also means you can inspire people remotely. It also means that me and you can have this conversation right now on Skype. I'm not trying to trick you. I don't feel like you're trying to trick me. Good, it's working. Yeah, yeah, right? But I mean like this wouldn't have been possible otherwise, right? So like, yeah, like people do manipulate each other using internet tools but people also do amazing things with internet tools right like wikipedia is incredible it's like a a wonder of the modern world right like you wouldn't even believe that a peer edited thing like that could exist if i came back 20 years ago and told you it would right like I think that uh, because this is new and because we are inherently concerned about people trying to manipulate us, we sometimes, even though there are actual assholes trying to manipulate us, it's also easy to focus on that at, and miss some of the other things, just like sort of it bleeds, it leads in journalism, right? Like you have these, you know, the things that excite us are often things that do not represent a statistical average of reality. They represent the things that our biology is really finely tuned to pay the most attention to. So it's not that I'm not concerned about digital manipulation. Like, clearly, people will keep doing it, and they're going to keep coming up with many clever new ways of doing it. But I am more or less equally concerned about that as I would be about in-person manipulation, right? Like that, that's still the same thing happening. It's just people with different tools. So if I know that that's not the kind of world I want to live in, what I try to do is use the best tools at my disposal to create a world I do want to live in. So when I use social media, I don't try to trick people. I don't, for example, retweet people who are trying to manipulate others in order to provoke, or make fun of them. Instead, I just completely ignore and block them. And I try to use social media to share things that I've learned about the world or things that inspire me about the world and to have conversations exactly like this. And my hope is that by using it as like reasonable, mutually respectful people, we can turn the digital world into a place that is full of that right that doesn't you know it's still going to have some of the the nasty stuff but it's but it's going to have a lot of the good stuff
0: that's a banner waving statement if i ever heard one (laughs) elliot i know you gotta (laughs) go but before you do i love asking people if they regard this recording as a sort of time capsule Mm. to be investigated by future historians and archaeologists uh Mm. what is it that you hope that people in the time frame of your books are actually grappling with like what is what is your sort of wish to the the future listeners of this show that their lives are actually like mm. presumably not constantly dealing with the unscalable email-esque threat of strangers <laughs> trying to manipulate them because that's that's that is the main difference right between the the digital and the analog space is you know that one person or a team of people can fuck with everybody
1: but, yeah although i mean you, you that that's absolutely true of broadcast media as well if not yeah. more so right like you want to look at a, a huge filter bubble look at the look at every network in the 1960s right? Like, geez, (laughs) like we, we we celebrate it because it was such a big filter bubble that everyone had no choice but to participate in it. Right? Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, um, you know, for for folks, for for all you future historians out there, um, first of all, we were trying to do our best and we're sorry. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, But but you know, I think that like there's this funny thing, and and I I find this when I'm when I'm writing these books that that sort of extrapolate or imagine these possible futures. Where yes, there's this world building, right? You're you're like thinking about how the world might be different. But at the, the same time, like the things that really really matter, like how you choose to spend the the time you're lucky enough to have on this earth. Right. Like whether you decide to try to trick people, as we were talking about before, or whether you try to live a life that issues that in in pursuit of something different and better, how much time you spend with the people you really care about, um, how you can as a self pursue selflessness. Right. Like like those things, I think, are very timeless. In, and they are the most important thing when, when I think about my own life. So when I'm writing a novel, I'm always trying to think not only what does this cool future look like and how might the world be different and what are some of these interesting questions, we sort of philosophical questions we've been talking about during this interview, um, but also for the character involved, how do they realize some of those truths in their own lives? At uh, those truths that really are timeless, that would would apply to your, you know, great 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 grandmother and your great 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 great, great granddaughter, right? Like that, those things are the things that really matter. So I would just hope that those future historians, <laughs> those listeners, remember that as well and try to learn those lessons, even even as we try to learn them today.
0: Mm that's wonderful and on that note i'm going to release you to your scheduled vacation so that you can do you can practice as you (laughs) preach (laughs) thanks so So much for being on the show
1: elliot thanks so much for having me cheers
0: thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did future fossils is part of the mind pod network which has a gorgeous totally renovated new website and is home to over a dozen amazing podcasts including third eye drops the astral hustle synchronicity it's all happening and many more go to mindpodnetwork.com and check them out Also, the featured sponsor for Future Fossils is Mike Schwab of KnowYourMeme.com. For those of you unfamiliar with Know Your Meme, they're super aligned with the premise of this show that our contemporary culture may be one day of archaeological interest. Know Your Meme has countless pages and forum threads exploring the history and significance of web memes in both image and video they were recently interviewed for a fabulous article on the history of the gif i highly recommend checking them out and that's all for now thanks again for listening to future fossils and have an excellent week